0: What are the sounds that move you? A skylark singing in spring? A speech that inspires you to act? A voice that reminds you of home? Words and performance have been vital lifelines throughout my life. And in this podcast series, I'm exploring how language and speech have shaped all of our lives, our work, our identities.
1: Words, English words, full of echoes, memories.
0: What so I'm it? diving into the British Library Sound Archive, the nation's largest collection of almost 6.5 million recordings that span the whole history of recorded sound. I'm in here with all of this, and I can't quite believe my look. In this series, I'll be sharing some of my favourite recordings with you and some rather special wordsmiths. I'm Lem say welcome to All About Sound from the British Library.
2: It is not really difficult to make a good omelette.
3: You have to enjoy food yourself, that's what makes a good cook. Years ago, nearly everybody used to brew their own beer.
4: That used to be a drop of good stuff at all.
3: You have sweet, you have sour, all mixed together so your palate is just feeling, sensing one magical thing after another in bursts of extreme flavor. Beans, beans, good
5: for yes. you, have, the more you eat, the
6: more you fart, the, the more, more you the better you, 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 you feel,
2: so eat hang beans, beans and you. There is one thing above all we must avoid when making an omelet, mm. and that is an inferiority complex.
0: What was the last thing
4: that you ate? That's a good question because I don't eat breakfast. So it wasn't this morning. It would have been yesterday. I had a late night snack of ricotta and anchovy and capers on toast. Thank you, Jonathan.
0: I'm very happy to say that today I'm searching the archives of the British Library like a forager in the forest with food writer Jonathan Nunn. Jonathan has written for various publications including The Guardian and Eater. He also edits the food newsletter Vittles, creating space for different conversations about food. Together, we are exploring the relationship between food and language. Both are passed down through generations and closely linked to identity, but how do the ways we talk about food change over time? And what does the history of food writing tell us about how society has changed? What's the power of writing about food? There's so much to explore, Jonathan, and I'm pleased you're joining me today because your presence in the world of food writing is a powerful and radical one. You seem to articulate, give voice to, open up language to a different story than the one of celebrity chefs and Michelin Star Wars. You can come at me at any point. (laughs) No, no,
4: thank you. That's really kind. I think, not to flag you up on any use of a word, but one word which... I'm always uneasy about is radical which is quite a powerful word and it's something that I never use to describe my own writing just because I think there are loads of other people doing really radical work and I very much feel that my own writing is very much within kind of the mainstream current of food writing or kind of where I want the mainstream to be and saying my work is radical what does that make the actual radical work kind of puts it even more to the side. And I think one thing which will probably come out of what we talk about today is that I think a lot of those conversations are a continuation of the food writing that has gone on for the last few hundred years. But maybe it's because the mainstream has become quite boring that it seems like radical in comparison sometimes. Mm.
0: Would you say that some of the articles in Vittles? Those writers, would you say, were radical in their thinking?
4: S- Some of them. I mean, a writer, I have I guess a collective of writers I've commissioned twice, who I would say is radical, is um, Angry Workers, who are a collective who kind of dedicated themselves to working within industrial food manufacture and kind of organise from within. And I would say the work they are doing is inherently radical. I guess... I would see Vittles' job as kind of being a bridge between that kind of radical writing, which has always gone on about food and the mainstream.
0: Fame is a food that dead men eat. I have no stomach for such meat. That's from a poem called Fame is a Food, written in 1906 by Henry Austin Dobson, uh, English poet. What does language mean to you, Jonathan. I can only speak English fluently. And I would say
4: that's always been a slight regret of mine. When I was younger, I was offered the chance to speak Konkani, which is an Indian language, my mother's Goan. But then I guess food has kind of become a slight language replacement for that and I think it does for many second generation mm. immigrants if they don't have the language or certain aspects of the culture then food becomes the way to get into it because you don't need to learn food All you need to do is
0: consume it So this is how this works, I choose some recordings from the British Library Sound Archive that I think you'll find particularly interesting, but you already know a fair bit about the archive right?
4: Yeah, I mean it was really serendipitous you asked me to be on because at the time I was working in the British Library working on a long read that I'm doing and still writing actually and came across the audio archive. And some of it's been really formative in how I've sort of approached the article and there's some quotations in there. There was a section on the creation of Borough Market with the uh, food writer Henrietta Green, which was very, very interesting. But yeah, if anyone is a member of the British Library or is thinking about being a member, then I actually can't recommend it enough.
0: You're ahead of us, Jonathan. (laughs) I want to dive into the archive now. I think you'll like these snippets of people from around the UK talking about the food and recipes they know.
3: Good Friday. You'd hear the boys come round with the hot cross oh, buns. Hot-pops. But you see, the barrels they used, they would be used for gathering horse manure all the week and then there'd be a bit of cloth put in the bottom and the hot-grass buns were put in. But you would lay in bed and they would be about seven o'clock and you'd hear these boys come in the distance and you'd hear hot-grass buns, hot-grass buns, and then they'd gradually get louder and louder and then you'd hear them every now and then it would stop and you knew somebody was born.
2: My mother, she used to make the paste. Mm-hmm. I wish I had some on it now. Out of red herring. You used to skin the herring, yeah. put them in a basin of water, stand them on a the stool, and then you'd take all the, all the meat out of them, mm-hmm. then you'd put them through a mincer, mm-hmm. and you'd put some anchovy on them, and you'd put them through the mincer four times, <laughs> and then you'd jar it off and then you put butter over it on and mm. seal it down. Cool, yeah. that was what you call a lovely meal, that was.
3: What about pig lug? You make pastry, first. You oh, get a bit of same and a, a bit of flour and a bit of salt put in. Then you mix it in the nose and then you get a drop of water and mix it to a nice movable consistency, they call it these days. All right. Anyway, you get that Do in. The, Pierce eye, and then you roll it out, dick. Then you put a bit of lather on it, butter, margarine, and then you put some sugar on Then you put it with a few currants. Your John doesn't like a lot of currants. Of course, she she has to have her own way, but though likes the... Raisin's best, yes, isn't it? Oh I like red. Ah, so. Well, next time I'm make Dick, we'll put no, raisins in the hand man? about what she no, likes. No, no, because I didn't like it. Then I rolls it out and I put it on a baking sheet, the stick. Puts a bit more sugar on top and a drop of milk. Bah, was, see what a shining face they have when they come out of David. Mm. Oh, the grand.
0: Many of those recordings have been digitised as part of the British Library's Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. Voices from all over the country have been saved from obsolescence, giving us rare insight into everyday lives. Recipes are a bit like family languages, aren't
4: they, Jonathan? Definitely, yeah. I mean, obviously everyone has one as well. I mean, those clips were beautiful because... I very much see the writing that I'm interested in as being about what we eat every day and sometimes the things which we wouldn't kind of think of to write down or to, like, record in any way. So, yeah, it's just amazing to have those voices there sort of talking about what an everyday recipe is. And I feel that's kind of, like, the right medium for it as well, That like just speaking about it.
0: What does a recipe hold besides the actual ingredients
4: It's got a very broad history, so it could be the history of a whole country, a whole region, really. One thing I just published today about Amber, the mango pickle, and sort of the recipes for it, sort of encompassed everything from trade routes to the creation of a nation to displacement, immigration... Then at a very basic level, it's kind of the history of your family, where your family's been. My mum's most treasured possession is in her own cursive handwriting, which she wrote when she was about 20, just watching her mother cook because her mother was a great cook. And um, the only way that my mum could get these recipes was just to stand and watch her cook and then write down things. And they're they're still in very imprecise language, which I really like. It's always like fingers of this.
0: (laughs) Why do you think that traditions being passed down through food is important? They're very
4: difficult to snuff out. For example, I mean as I was saying with language, I feel kind of a sense of kind of responsibility that my generation and my sisters uh, unbroken line of people speaking Konkani will have died out, but then we will always eat that food and we will always try and cook that food and Maybe we'll pass on that food, if not the language to the next generation, so it's sort of an extraordinary resilient form of language.
0: would your grandmother, if she was here, would she appreciate your version of her dish?
4: Oh, I wouldn't know, I mean, I hope so, but i mean i'm I'm sure whatever she thought she would be able to improve it. Mm. Um, ah. And um, she died when I was quite young, so it's always been a slight regret of mine that I never got to cook with her.
0: But you got the translation, you got the mother. your mother's
4: recipes. Exactly. Incredible. I, I got the translation, but it's not quite the same. The only thing that's actually left that's physical is a jar of fish pickle that my grandmother made before she died. So that must be about 30 years old. Um, So, yeah, in pickling, you have a, a kind of form of bringing back the dead.
0: Are there any words, phrases specific to food that your family have coined, that only your family have coined?
4: Oh, that's very good. All of us had different words for grapes when we were growing up. So when we were first learning how to talk, I mean, we always used to eat grapes. And I've got two twin sisters, and one of them used to say gips. And then the other one used to say Dwalt, which is nowhere near it. (laughs) But then they, they always got referred to that from then on. It was either one of the two.
0: Why did you start your newsletter, Vittles? What problems in food writing were you hoping to address?
4: My background was very much restaurant writing. And I started restaurant writing because I couldn't see the type of writing within... The mainstream of food media, by which I mean mainly newspapers, of the restaurants which I was eating at and have eaten at kind of all my life. So it was kind of to redress a imbalance of I guess what was considered important. and my only knowledge of food writing really kind of extended to restaurant writing. And when the pandemic happened, obviously I couldn't write about restaurants anymore and i started the newsletter to talk about other things and it very soon became clear that every kind of sort of subgenre of food writing which could be restaurants recipe writing academic writing i mean really food writing can encompass anything it became really clear that there was a desire for it and Bittles kind of became the platform for it. I think that food writing can be practiced by people who kind of downplay the importance of what they say, because it can be a very frivolous subject, it can be very lifestyle and I think there isn't an awareness of how much their work really changes the narratives about things how the narrative of what we eat can be changed by a writer who suddenly says this is how things can be this is kind of okay same with restaurants as well like people can change the narrative over what is considered to be important whose labor is considered to be important Mm. what areas are considered to be important and place is a really big thing for me in terms of restaurant writing one of the articles I, I did last year for someone else was a guide to Peckham for Eater London. And it was a kind of personal thing for me because I've lived on the border of Camberwell and Peckham for the last three years. And I've only ever seen it talked about in restaurant writing from the perspective of new white-owned restaurants coming in and being written about as the next sort of big thing for Peckham. And it just didn't tally in with anything that I experienced in Peckham Mm. of the vast diversity of places there. But I wanted to write something which told that story and said, this is important as well. But it had to resonate with the people who live in Peckham. And I think it did from the reaction it got and seeing people's kind of joy at seeing their reality represented is kind of why I write. I'm interested in having my writing reflect something which people already know themselves.
0: Okay, I wanna dig deeper into the link between food and language and identity and explore how food culture has changed in the UK. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded in April, 2021, as part of the British Library food season. The speakers are exploring eating, culture, and identity in modern Britain. In these extracts, you'll hear from historian Penn Vogler and writer Ruby Tando, and the chair was Babita Sharma, BBC journalist and author of The Corner Shop.
5: One thing that strikes me is, like, yeah, like, for example, if you just walk around a supermarket, you know, there's so much more selection, there's so much more choice than there was even 10 years ago. I recently went back to my hometown in South End and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like there was a Polish shop and there were West African shops and there were things that just didn't exist. So there is more selection in terms of food. I also think that there is a little barrier between that food as it is provided by, bought by, eaten by the people who belong to that culture, and then that food when it enters the mainstream. And I think quite often what what needs to happen, this is one of the problems with our food culture at the moment what needs to happen for it to enter the mainstream in any significant way is it needs to be like decoded by a kind of a trusted figure and most of the time that trusted figure will be someone who is just for example this is not a, a criticism of this person in particular but rick stein someone who can go to a different place and make that food accessible to other people and and who can you know I guess just give it an acceptable and quite often this means a white face and and to make it accessible in that way. So
7: there's definitely that issue. Can you give me an example of the food type that you're referring to that you think needs to be under the spotlight a bit more?
5: Well, just for example, like let's just talk about West African foods, because that's something that I know a bit about. That's part of my heritage. Like it has really struggled to kind of become mainstream in the way that some other foods have for sure. And I think some of that is to do with misconceptions about it being stodgy or oily or whatever. And these really offensive stereotypes, but they're stereotypes that persist.
7: Both of you, Pen and Dee, you're nodding away there. Pen, to you first. I mean, those stereotypes, tell us a little bit more about where you think they come from and how they've evolved over the many, many years uh, and your extensive research. I'm putting you on the spot now, but if you can.
5: Well, there are so I mean, it, British food has always been quite absorptive so we have over the centuries we've taken on you know dangerous new foods like potatoes and tomatoes and it took two or three hundred years for people to genuinely think that potatoes were edible and wouldn't poison you even though there'd be huge prejudice against it them when they were seen as irish for example or to think that eating a raw tomato wasn't going to kind of send you straight into hospital you know there was a lot of um anxiety and prejudice against things
0: i didn't know that about the uh, potato
4: no i mean there's so much in that small snippet what ruby says resonates a lot with me and i think it may have even been the first thing we ever talked about about three years ago i was writing an article it was about west african food it was about why hasn't it hit sort of the mainstream yet and what ruby was saying is actually very similar to what she said there. It was about the lack of a trusted translator, and, and often that translator is white and middle class. The obvious example would be someone like Fuchsia Dunlop, who translated Sichuan, Food for Everyone, in such a sort of extraordinary way. But it was something that was there in London in the early 2000s, but no one knew much about it and no one knew how to approach it. Like, was it supposed to be this spicy? Like, do we eat the chilies? Why is that my tongue numb? And then you read Fuchsia's writing and you're like, "Okay, this is how it's meant to be. I kind of trust this now. And I think it does play into a kind of historic fear of the British and other people's food.
0: How did the British public lose their fear of Sichuan food?
4: I think it was very much through writing and cookbooks. So I can't remember when Fuchsia's first book was, but it was kind of contemporaneous with the time when Sichuan food was starting to appear on menus in London. But it wasn't until those cookbooks got published that people kind of got it and then you start to see see the effect kind of trickle into reviews. Mm. I mean I remember 2010 was probably when I first started eating Sichuan food and I remember how just thrilling that was at the time.
0: The next two clips I want to play really speak to how immigration has shaped the way we eat in the UK. To introduce the first recording, we're going to hear from Vicky Karen. Vicky was part of the British Library's Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project, which has been working to bring the nation's sound to the public over the last few years. Around the country, audio curators have been searching for the most fascinating and revealing sounds. Over to Vicky.
6: Hello, my name is Vicky Karen, and I'm the Cataloguing Manager at the Northwest Hub of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. So this recording is from a year-long oral history project which was funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund and hosted by Tameside Local Studies and Archives Centre in 2005. Over 130 interviews capture the memories of Bangladeshi, Indian and Pakistani people who came to live in Tameside. This interview is with Tara Din. Ms Din was born in 1953 in Uganda but moved to Kenya as a baby. Her father worked on the railways and she came to the UK in 1966. She settled in Ashton and she was the only Asian woman in the town at that time to run a takeaway. The recording was made on the 2nd of December in 2005 in the interviewee's home. Have you paid £7,500? Right. And me and my
1: sister opened it, and everybody said, Oh, the first two Asian girls to open a takeaway. Yeah. It's always men, isn't it? Yeah. And um, it was brilliant. Those 20 years I spent in my shop. You left 20, 20 years? 20 years. It was brilliant. Yeah. I loved every minute of it. What was business like? Well, first it was very busy. Was it? Because it was only me and Shokat. Yeah. Right? And then they opened that potato factory. Yeah, yeah. Remember what's the piece yeah, down the there? Right. Well, it, obviously, it would affect your business. So it wasn't so bad. And then slowly, slowly, there was that many in Ashton. Yeah, yeah. On Penny Meadow, there were three. Yeah. One opened right opposite me. Yeah. And everybody wants delivery nowadays. Yeah, I and know. I was on my own. I couldn't do it. Yeah. But I was happy. It was my living. What hours did you do then? What oh, did long hours. And when I first opened, we used to go and open at 11 o'clock till 12. Till 12 at night? At 12. And I we never closed in between.
7: No Chinese restaurant outside London without half an English menu because they're still in the process of a changing. That's why the Chinese do it right. We cannot say in 15, 16, 17, say you have to have Chinese food. Say four people come in, if three of them want Chinese, one don't one Chinese, they still can have an omelet or salad or something. That's why we do it right. We don't insist to say you have to have Chinese. Food is a culture. First culture, you cannot change people in one year. In those days, in the 50s, I think a lot of people never had a Chinese food before. They go into a Chinese restaurant because the other English restaurant closed at half past nine, at last order. So they came out after half past nine, they go to a Chinese restaurant, they ask a Miss Grill. In Yorkshire, Miss Grill is very popular.
5: Did people ever make negative comments about Chinese food at that oh, time? Oh yes,
7: they say a lot of things. You know, say a lot. When they went here. we're standing outside, there's a menu. There's a <laughs> sweat and sour pork. Everybody thinks, sweat and sour pork, sweat and sour. They're very sarcastic. They couldn't understand how can I think sweat and sour at the same time? Until they taste it, it is.
0: The second clip you heard is a short extract from a Life Story oral history interview recorded in 2001 for the National Life Stories project, Food from Source to Sale Point, Point. And the interviewer was... Polly Russell. Jonathan, interesting thing about that for me is the Chinese community were from Hong Kong, which is a very particular kind of Chinese, and the Indian worker was actually Kenyan-Asian. Yes. Asian-Kenyan. There's something about that, is there?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing... That always happens with cuisines that they kind of get flattened to being kind of, this is Indian food, this is Chinese food, kind of ignoring the very specific things that these are. So that first immigration pattern very much mirrors my own mother's from India to Kenya. She was born in Nairobi, grew up in Mombasa. Her family came over in 72, I think, so about six years afterwards.
0: Very cosmopolitan community, that community in particular. Yes. It's also made for some really interesting food Connections, right? It it has. I mean, like when I was
4: growing up, like the thing that my mum used to cook for me, which I never really appreciated until recently, was ugali. And ugali was something I just assumed was Indian. Mm. It's an Indian food because my mum, who is Indian, is making it and never really realized until later that that is an East African staple.
0: And your mother's telling
4: you a story through that food. Yeah, and if you actually have a look at a lot of the Indian restaurants now in the UK, I would say the biggest names in Indian food came through East Africa. A huge number of them.
0: Right. What kind of foods do you think mainstream media should be paying more attention to now? What food are you loving at the moment? I mean, one of the things which I
4: try to stay away from is, is to see cuisines as trends. And I think there's a tendency within mainstream food media, both here and in America actually, to see kind of a pattern somewhere and then suddenly to say this is a trend. And we just because we've noticed it. I mean, I've just seen recently baklava as a trend. Like, when did this happen? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Been around here for a very, very long time, let alone in Turkey. So I would say what I'd like there to be more focus on in this country is looking at rather than what is popular in global food patterns, which is very much dictated by American food writing. So there's this kind of obsession, for example, with like Mexican food, which has a lot of context in American food writing, not so much here because there aren't many Mexican immigrants here. And I would say what I'd like to see more of is looking at the cultures which really have changed the way we eat within this country and looking at them in further depth. So looking at South Asian food, not as just kind of the high-end Indian Mm. food, but like looking at it in its totality and looking at the specificity of it, looking at how... Pakistan and Bangladesh have changed food culture in this country. Looking at the specificity of Cantonese food as well, how that's going to change over the next few years, which is going to change very dramatically as more people from Hong Kong come to the UK.
0: One food writer who has definitely affected conversations around food is Claudia Roden, author of Med, a Cookbook, and The New Book of Middle Eastern Food, She's often credited with revolutionising Western attitudes to Middle Eastern and Mediterranean food. Claudia was born in 1936 to a Jewish-Egyptian family. In 1951, she left Cairo for France and then to the UK to study art. But after the Suez Crisis of 1956, her family, like many other Egyptian Jews who were expelled or fled, joined her to settle in London. There, she began to collect recipes, and in this recording she explains why
2: at that time writing about food and talking about food was looked down upon somehow food was not a subject it was a taboo subject it was a ridiculous subject people thought Uh, little of it and in a way uh, to be interested in writing about food was somehow a very low thing but When I did start writing about food, eventually, it was for my reasons. My reasons were world loss of a heritage and the need to capture it. So I was thinking of us, myself, my family, all the people I knew who had had to leave, but then on to also others who had come from Syria or who had come from Turkey. Uh, You know, thinking those have to be written down, have to be made a record of, but uh, in those days I wasn't thinking of the English, because at that time the English were not interested at all in Middle Eastern food. People just thought of it as maybe disgusting even. I mean, when the English had been colonists at that time, they never ate the local food They didn't want to taste it. Now it's the opposite. I can say all those things without feeling I'm offending because I think now it's the absolute opposite.
0: That was Claudia Roden also speaking as part of the National Life Stories project Food from Source to Sale Point in 2001. Jonathan, any reflections on what Claudia said there? Is food writing about capturing loss?
4: I mean, sometimes, but I mean, what she said there is really fascinating. And I was actually reading an interview by her recently, where she kind of says the same thing about food being the taboo. And she, I think, she actually compares it to British attitudes to sex and like not wanting to talk about it. To see talking about it as being this kind of like, oh, please don't talk about that. We're British. And I think she's actually like precisely correct she also wrote something for an architectural talk which i was reading about the way attitudes to food have changed in london and i mean like someone of my age what she was describing was just so completely unrecognizable but like everyone who was around then says the same thing that there really was no food culture in london except for the upper class And then a food culture, which was more demotic, which was kind of ignored. But you you just simply couldn't get ingredients. You couldn't go to restaurants to find certain cuisines. And there has been this just extraordinary attitude shift, which is kind of hard to explain in any one way.
0: We've heard a lot today about how food writing recipes have changed over time. But what do you hope for the future of food writing in the UK?
4: I think I, I hope that everyone, no matter their background, feels like they can write about food. It's, it's really the one thing which no one has any more expertise on than the next person. It's something that we all do. It's something that we can all tell our own stories of, we all have our own taste. And just how much more wonderful it would be if we had more people writing about it, more stories, not the same story over and over again
1: me and my sister opened it and everybody said oh the first two asian
2: girls to open a takeaway it's always men, isn't it uh, to be an interested in writing about food was somehow a very low thing
3: what about pig log? you might paste strip a bit of flour and a bit of salt put in
5: one of the problems with our food culture at the moment what needs to happen for it to Enter the mainstream in any significant way is it needs to be like decoded by a trusted figure.
7: They say sweet and sour pork. Everybody think sweet and sour pork. They're very sarcastic. They couldn't understand how can I think sweet and sour at the same time.
0: Have you learned anything from any of the clips? I
4: think the clips from the Indian and the Chinese restaurateur about what it was like setting up a restaurant in the 1970s were my favourite just because you, you never hear about these things. It's something which no one ever thought was important enough to write down and I guess it's only later through archival work that these things kind of get listened to again and released. I would love to read a whole book of that, to be honest, a whole book of how these restaurateurs, without any kind of notion of what they were in for, transformed the way we eat. That's a whole oral history project in itself, really.
0: Jonathan Nunn, thank you very much.
4: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure for me.
0: Our exploration of the archive has come to an end for another episode, but there's so much more to listen to. If you'd like to explore further, visit bl.uk forward slash allaboutsound. And to see a full track listing of the archive and music recordings in this episode, do take a look at the episode description. This is a Pixiu production for the British Library. The producers are Katie Davis and Alex Watson. Next week, best-selling author Monica Ali will be joining me to explore how love stories have changed over time. Don't miss it. Until next time, from me, Lem say thanks for listening.